Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. With the many social, economic, and spiritual challenges facing our country in the first half of 2022, we seem to have forgotten about healthcare. What's working in our healthcare system and what's not? How are we doing after 10 plus years of reform through the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as the ACA or Obamacare? Has the ACA helped us or hurt us? In addition, what's a single-payer system or, or Medicare for all that some politicians are promoting? This is the first of a two-part interview with Grace Marie Turner, founder, president, and a trustee of the Galen Institute. In this interview, Grace Marie will discuss these and other issues, drawing upon her extensive experience in healthcare policy. Grace Marie Turner, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Joe, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for having me, and hello to all of our listeners. Yes, great to have you as well. So our listeners know that I ask this of every new guest on our podcast, and you are a new guest on the podcast. So can you please uh, tell us a bit about your background, specifically your education and your work experience leading up to your work with the Galen Institute? Now, I started my work as a journalist, and I think that has helped me throughout my career in sort of writing and communicating ideas. I always was interested in healthcare, but it really wasn't until 1992 when then a candidate, Bill Clinton, put healthcare on the on the national policy stage. Yep. And that really got me engaged in this issue. I, after a couple of years, started a think tank called the Galen Institute. We are a 501c3. We're just like the Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, but we're a boutique think tank. We focus just on health policy. And our founding ideas are to put doctors and patients at the center of the healthcare relationship, not government. And over the time that I have been running the Galen Institute, now 25 years, we have worked very closely with allies throughout the health policy community, both in Washington and around the country, to help to build those fundamental policy foundations that allow the the principles of medicine to prevail, not the principles of politics. So I do a lot of writing, a lot of speaking, a lot of congressional testimonies, but we also run the health policy consensus group to build a stronger foundation for these ideas. Yeah, we'll talk about the health policy consensus group in the second uh in the second part of our interview, I uh, like that you, you started talking about the Galen Institute a little bit more. I, I was wondering, I, I wanted to read from your organization's website because it's, it's, it's really quite telling. Um, so this, this is from your website, quote, the Galen Institute is a nonprofit 501c3, as you mentioned, public policy research organization devoted to creating a vibrant patient-centered health sector. I love that, patient-centered. We work to promote policies that lead to individual responsibility and control over healthcare and health insurance, lower costs through market competition, and a strong safety net for vulnerable populations. The Galen Institute believes that consumers and their physicians, as you mentioned earlier, that consumers and their physicians should have authority and responsibility over healthcare decisions. Now, Grace, you started talking about this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more. How, how does the Galen Institute do this? 
Well, the, the, the rules that both physicians, hospitals, uh, anybody that's participating in the healthcare se- sector, including, phys- including patients, must follow, really do set the tone for who's in charge of those decisions. And um, as I have written numerous times and will be testifying next week before Congress, the the government is controlling a larger and larger part of our health sector. Now, according to some calculations, up to 80%. And so when government's making these decisions, and we've, we've seen it during COVID, we have seen where government decides who is going to get antiviral treatments and who's going to get Regeneron, for example, not the doctors. And, and we all know that's not right. But when government controls so much of the money and controls has so much power, regulatory and legal power, it really puts the doctor and the patient at the bottom of the healthcare totem pole. Right. Yeah. So uh, you're the founder, you're the president and also a trustee of mm-hmm. the institute. So so what are your what are your responsibilities? What what do you do in these various roles? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, I've I, we were talking about this earlier about what's a typical day. I don't think I've had a typical day in 25 years. <laughs> most most people on come on the podcast say that. They're like, what's a typical day? Exactly. I have no idea. That's right. You know, I I do a lot of speaking. Now it's much more virtual. But, you know, early on and during the height of Obamacare, I was on an airplane every week speaking at a conference, four or five hundred physicians in an audience uh, and insurance agents, companies that are trying to figure out how to navigate this, patient groups, etc. Lots of meetings in Washington. I'm frequently called before. Uh, before Congress to testify, but also to advise individual members of Congress and their staff and committee staff who are thinking about ideas. You know, if if we were to do X, what do you think would likely happen? This is right. the goal we're trying to achieve. Do you think this policy change would likely get us there? So though we, we really try to help in the formulation of the ideas to get to the goals that we have held to for our entire 25 year history. Yeah. It's good. I love, I love the practical side of it is trying to, you know, how does this work? You know, yeah. how, how do we do this? I, I love that because I'm the practical guy here too. So. Well, it's meetings and it's podcasts now. I yep. started out actually in my journalism career, I did a lot of radio and I love radio. I think that it's really such a, such a personal communications yep. medium, you know, and podcasts are the, are the they new are. incarnation of radio. So <laughs> I love this too. Yep. And as I say, I've got a face for podcasts, so that that's why we do it this way. I don't way. think that's true. I'm looking at you, and that's not true. <laughs> anyway, so so Grace, Marie, you you talked about a little bit earlier. You were mentioning the, the the big role of government in healthcare, and I'm wondering if we could kind of unpack that a little bit and and give us a little bit of context because I, I'm you know th- this is you know this is healthcare 101 for me as well too. Just you know really kind of understanding this. So I, I guess the the first question, and my apologies if these are a little simplistic, but when and what was the process by which the federal government really got heavily involved in healthcare? And was it kind of a gradual process? Was it a kind of an immediate stepping in with different things? Can you give us a little context? How did the federal government get 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 its hand so heavily involved in healthcare? Very, the really very good question. And there, a Pulitzer Prize winning book called "The Social Transformation of American Medicine" really just. Dis- 
follows that trajectory. But the Cliff Notes version is that it started with um, hospitals and school teachers needing basically hospital hospital protection, hospital protection against hospital bills um, in the 20s and 30s. And so private insurance began to evolve early in the, the 20th century. And in, in World War II, we had wage and price controls, and it was a huge competition for labor among manufacturers building the armaments for World War right, II, right. and so, and that they couldn't increase wages because of wage and price controls. And they said, could we offer health insurance as a benefit and have that not violate the wage and price controls? And a, a lowly government economist named Milton Friedman <laughs> said, sure, <laughs> that would be okay. And so basically health insurance became associated with, with the employer base, with, with jobs during World War II, and it grew and grew because it's a tax-free benefit, giving it a lot of incentive for people to, to get that benefit. And now counting in uh, workers, dependents, and retirees, about 178 million people have health insurance through the workplace. That's really unique among developed countries. But it started because of that trajectory. But in 1965, to get to your first question about how did the federal government get involved, that was the year that the Great Society, um, with then President Lyndon Johnson, passing the this vast a program to assure that seniors had government-provided health coverage mm -hmm. um, after age 65, and and Medicaid, which was for designed for people who are lower income, was really an afterthought. So the federal government created Medicare, into which people would pay during you know a small premium, a small attacks, basically, during their working years to have this coverage when they retired. Medicaid became a joint federal and state project that was, no one really thought it through. But those two programs, <laughs> now there are 64 million people on Medicare for seniors and disabled, and nearly 80 million people on Medicaid. That really surprises a lot of people. Yeah. And so we have, you know, these two major programs. There are other programs, the Children's Health Insurance Program, the Veterans Administration Program, others that supplement those. But but Medicare, Medicaid, big federal programs, employer-based health insurance, which is still very highly regulated by government. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah. For private For private individuals. Yeah. So it's it's not just that the, the Medicaid and Medicare programs that the government is involved in, but also the, the regulatory aspects of the essentially the employer um, insurance programs that I'm, you know, that I have and many, you know, millions of other people have as well, too. That's right. I I actually I included in my testimony before the House Oversight and Reform Committee, uh, March 29th, um, I uh, quoted a paper by 
the Wharton professor, Mark Pauly, who wrote a, a paper for the American Enterprise Institute about the controlling role of the federal government in our health sector and details how much the federal government shapes the, the spending and the right. rules they have to follow. And he finds the share of government-affected spending in 2016 totaled nearly 80%. Yeah. So the government is in control of way too much of our health sector. Yeah, yeah. And just for our listeners, um, Grace Marie, you mentioned dates. We're recording this podcast on May 3rd of 2022. So um, just to, to, to get a little context there. Grace Marie, I'm wondering just a quick follow-up question before moving on. You, you talked about how um, health insurance started in, in you know, it, 20s and 30s and then you know moving into World War II and then the federal government really got involved in the 1960s with uh, with President Johnson but what did the healthcare system if it was a system maybe that's part of the question too mm-hmm. what what did the healthcare system in the US look like before this government involvement was it essentially kind of a pay as you go type thing or or what did it look like Oh boy. I think we've heard many, many stories about people talking about their grandfathers being paid with a chicken, you know, or, <laughs> or a ham <laughs> for going to somebody's house to deliver a baby. Frankly, there just there there wasn't as much that medicine could do before the second half of the 20th century. We had antibiotics. Pfizer actually probably saved my father's life by figuring out how to manufacture on a bulk scale antibiotics and to keep people alive. My father got pneumonia when he was a pilot in World War II in North Africa. And so I, but there were, there were many fewer things. Technologies, as, as technologies throughout the economy began to become more sophisticated, the same thing was true in healthcare. And therefore it became more expensive. And therefore we've figured out everybody needs to have somebody help them pay the major what we all hope will be unexpected bills that they couldn't pay out of their own salaries. Yeah. All right. So let's fast forward to about 2010 and um, to the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known, as I said in the introduction, as the ACA or Obamacare. So in 2010, this legislation was passed by the uh, Democrat-controlled Congress, and it was signed into law by then-President Barack Obama. And I think people should Remember that Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president um, here as well, too. So, Grace Marie, how has the ACA in its 10 plus years impacted the role of government in healthcare? Dramatically increased it. I actually was in the gallery the night that the bill passed the House. Uh, if you'll recall, it passed the Senate on a snowy night just before Christmas in 2009. And then um, Senator Ted Kennedy died. And so they no longer had a majority in the Senate yep. uh, to be able to, uh, to, to sort of refine the legislation. And so the House basically had to pass the Senate bill, which they did, March 20th, and it signed into law March 23rd of 2010. Since then, and I just looked up these, these figures this morning, Kaiser Family Foundation, which is actually quite a reliable source for government data, in 2011, so that would have been the next year after mm-hmm. this passed, the average premium, employer premium for uh, family coverage was $15,000. Last year, it was t- almost, it was over 22000 There's been a 43% increase in health costs. During that debate, 
I remember hearing member after member as they were all giving their speeches before the final vote late that Sunday night, all saying, finally, we're going to get to universal coverage. We've had Medicare, Medicaid, employer-based health insurance. This is going to help fill the gap so that everybody will be able to have health insurance. Well, that's not the way it's worked out. We now have still 28 million people without health insurance, and health costs have risen much more rapidly than they were before the law passed. Yeah, which actually leads me right into my next question. Um, So the politicians promised us that the Affordable Care Act would lower costs, allow for greater accessibility, greater delivery of health care. Has the ACA accomplished what we were promised? The net increase in the number of people who have health insurance now that did not before the bill went into effect, it didn't actually go into effect until 2014, is pretty much zero for private coverage between the people who lost their employer coverage because the employer just dropped it and put them on on the Affordable Care Act and the increase in the number of people who went on to Medicaid, Mm -hmm. basically all of the coverage increase in the Affordable Care Act, what the Affordable Care Act was through increases in Medicaid coverage, the program designed for lower income. Americans. And so it has really not dramatically increased private insurance coverage, but it has increased, I think, about by about 14 million people have coverage than didn't before. But mm-hmm. the great majority of that is through Medicaid or through people who lost private employer coverage or had private um, in, individual policies that dropped them in order to get on these subsidized policies. Yeah. So basically, if I'm hearing what you're saying, is that what was promised to us really hasn't been delivered, at least in those areas. Which is why President Biden said we are going to run on improving and enhancing the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get... President Obama never said, he said, I don't mind you calling it Obamacare, but I will tell you that on social media, if you call something Obamacare, you are immediately thrown to the (laughs) bottom of the totem pole. So I call it the Affordable Care Act, even though it is not affordable. Yeah, one of those one of those misnomers. We're, we're going to get back to, uh, to to Joe Biden in a little bit here, but I want to ask you a question about uh, conscience rights and religious mm-hmm. liberty, and these have this has uh, implications uh, even for today as as we're as we're talking. But Grace Marie, what impact has the Affordable Care Act had on conscience rights and religious liberty, both for healthcare professionals and for institutions? And and I'm speaking specifically, although you don't have to speak exclusively about this, but I'm speaking specifically about Section 1557 of the ACA. Well, and we... um... We have seen all too clearly with the lawsuits that um, about against the con- uh, contraceptive mandate with the Little Sisters of the Poor having mm-hmm. to go to the Supreme Court numerous times in order to be able to protect their conscience rights. We see now a great deal, even bigger threats coming from the Department of Health and Human Services with a rule that they plan to implement that would basically invalidate religious liberty 
conscience rights as a reason for not performing a medical procedure that someone, a patient may want that the physician objects to. One of the things that we work very hard on is protecting religious liberty and freedom of conscience. It is it is the, this fundamental right about the dignity of the human person and being able to have that protection so that the the individual and their families and the physicians that they trust are making decisions, not government. Yeah, I was wondering, um, just uh, uh, maybe focusing a little bit on uh, Section fifteen fifty seven, the uh, the part about the non discrimination. So what uh, um, what the Obama administration did, and now what the Biden administration is doing, it's you know you can't discriminate against someone, unjust discrimination on the basis of sex. And as we know in our culture and our world today, what does the word sex mean? Right. And you know, when the um, you know when the Civil Rights Act was first passed, you know, everybody understood sex to mean male female sex. But the you know, Section fifteen fifty seven, it was interpreted by the Obama administration that sex now uh, it, it includes sexual orientation, it includes gender identity. So they tried to do that. Um, the Trump administration, it, it kind of that kind of stalled within the Trump administration, but now the Biden administration is, is all in on this. Right. And and I'm, I was wondering if you could comment on that uh, in terms of this this redefinition of sex, which we have from from 1557, and and what are some of the the specific problems that Catholic specifically Catholic healthcare, but not exclusively Catholic mm-hmm. healthcare, may be facing uh, in the months and years to come. I have been a volunteer policy advisor to the Catholic Medical Association for many, many years and also um, very supportive of the new Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance. And those those um, organizations and others like them are going to be focusing on protecting religious liberty because as, as gender becomes defined as much more fluid and as four and five-year-olds are being given the right to decide they want to change their gender and all puberty blocking, all right. of the really what many people consider to be child abuse, mm-hmm. that, that that has to be a major, major focus in public policy. And and I work with my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation, at the American Enterprise Institute, and a number of other institutions in helping to first educate people and understand that your physician may decide that he or she has to close their practice because they cannot perform these these procedures, we may lose many medical professions. Hospitals, Catholic hospitals, would have to close if they were forced to provide abortions. So there, we must, to protect our healthcare system, we must protect those who need to be able to exercise their freedom of conscience and religious liberty. So in a public policy perspective, educating Congress, hopefully I'll be invited to testify about that. We'll invite you, Joe. I think you definitely, definitely could help them understand for the sanctity of the human person, we must must not have government have imposing these kind of requirements on the medical profession and, um, and physicians in particular. Yeah, I'd be happy to be part of those conversations. I just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking as we are, uh, as we're speaking today, again, it's it's May 3rd, and just the, you know, down in Florida recently, the, the Florida Department of Health issued guidelines basically saying, you know, 
the so-called gender transitioning, particularly in children, just, you know, just speaking out very strongly against it. I know the state of Alabama has a law that's being challenged and it's, you know, but I think, you know, listeners need to know um, that it's our federal government that's actually leading the charge in this. It's the Biden administration. It's the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's our government. This is the stated goal of those who are in, you know, who are in office right now is to, is to force uh, everyone to, uh, to, you know, not just participate in it, but accept this whole idea of gender transitioning and, and as you said, abortion and, and everything as well. So, it's just, it's, it's a crazy world and um, crazy times to, to be you. Well, and it's, it's especially, I think this is another example of why the federal government is really out of its element in trying to manage something as personal and regional and local as healthcare. And that's, we'll talk about this later, but one of the, one of our major policy proposals is based upon the process of subsidiarity. We need to move power and control away from Washington, lower and lower to ultimately to, to, to doctors and patients, but allow states to be able to, to make decisions. Many people say we would not have had the last 50 years of controversy over Roe v. Wade had the states been allowed to make decisions about abortion rights. Obviously, I strongly, strongly, strongly oppose Roe v. Wade, but I also believe in our federalist system of government and that eventually if the states are able to have a vibrant, open public debate, we will get to the right decision. But it's not going to happen if it's from a head from Washington, HHS, the White House on high, imposing rules on the whole country that could be just as divisive as Roe v. Wade. Right. Uh, oh boy, we could go. We could go down. We could talk about this till till the cows come home. But I, I do want to go back and and pick up. Um, you were talking about uh, Joe Biden saying we need to build on Obamacare. So he so he has said that. You know, we we need to build on Obamacare. Grace, maybe what does this mean? What is what is he saying when he says this? And and what has his administration done, if anything, with regard to healthcare? Too often when liberals talk about we need to fix this program means we need to spend more money on it and we need to regulate it even more. And that's exactly what they've done with the Affordable Care Act. They have poured billions of dollars into this program in order to increase the value of the subsidies, virtually all of which go to the insurance companies, not to individuals, and to allow people Making four, five, six hundred percent of poverty, making you know four, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars a year, if they meet certain criteria, they can qualify for federal government subsidies for their health insurance. And the great majority of people who are being again, once again, included in these enhanced subsidies that were passed through the COVID relief uh, legislation are people who already have coverage or could afford it, but why not take advantage of a $17,000 federal subsidy or more in some cases? If the federal government's handing out money, drop your private insurance and go on the federal dole. That, unfortunately, I think is is the goal, that they really, 
that the, those who want Medicare for all want to get rid of private health insurance and want to get rid of really any sort of private profit motive in healthcare. That's the goal. And they do it little by little by driving more and more people into a government program and out of private insurance. So that's what build on Obamacare means in code is get more people out of private insurance and onto government insurance programs. Well, and basically having the taxpayers pick up more of the bill of, of the uh, health insurance and health care costs. And it, it's really tragic because we still have 28 million people that don't have health insurance. Virtually all of them are, if they're here legally, so I'm this, you know, there are a number of people here, undocumented immigrants who are not, who are uninsured. That's an immigration problem, not a healthcare right. problem. Right. But of the people who are uninsured today, virtually all of them are eligible for coverage somewhere, whether or not it's through the employer, whether or not it's through Medicare with Medicaid. They're just not enrolled. That's the problem. Let's get them enrolled. Let's not throw our whole healthcare system out and start right. over again. Let's figure out the problem and solve it. Yeah, yeah. A, a question, a little kind of going off script here a little bit. I, I'm reminded when you were talking just now, but I'm reminded back in uh, when the ACA was first being debated and everything else and the famous line, if you like your health care, you can keep it. And I, I, to be honest, I got, I, I've got to give the NCBC uh, a shout out. We have a fantastic health insurance program. Mm, I want to keep it. Right. I, I, I want to keep it. But yeah. it sounds to me, and, and again, tell me if I'm wrong on this, is building on Obamacare is, again, is that code for, well, maybe you don't get to keep your health insurance plan if you like it. You know, it, that's, that's really an interesting question because um, – the people who are really hardcore Medicare for all, single payer, government run healthcare yeah. system. Which we'll get to in a second. Yeah. They don't necessarily want to fix the Affordable Care Act. They just say, just pour some more money into it for the time being in order to buy us some time to get to where we really want to go. And they are now coming after the employer based health insurance system because it's basically private system. It's through private insurance. You, Most people have choices. I'm sure you have a choice of more than one plan, yes. which is wonderful. And if you're on Medicaid, that's not the case. If you're on a government program, you get the program that the politicians say you get, that's it. They don't like choices. They don't like competition. And so I do Well, they believe... do like choices when it comes to taking the life of your unborn child, but any other choice. Yes, correct. That's correct. Or Sorry, choices I, just, in... I just had to say that. Yeah, or choices in uh, what your gender might right. be. Yeah. Right, yeah. But, they, but when we talk about competition and choice, we talk about the kind of free market that has worked in so many other sectors of our economy that we don't allow to work in the health sector. That's the tragedy. Yeah. Ugh. All sorts of stuff here to, to talk about. But let, let's go back. I'd like to dig in a little bit more on the single payer system. So, I mean, as you mentioned, some, maybe many on the political left, and I'm, I'm specifically thinking of of uh, Bernie Sanders during the uh, the 2020 presidential campaign. So, so some or many on the political left are calling for this, as you said, a single payer system. And Grace Muir, I wonder, can you tell us what is a single payer system or Medicare for all, as you said? What are the arguments in favor of it? What are the arguments against it? Mm -hmm. 
I have a really hard time coming up with the arguments in favor of it, I will tell you. Um, and I have actually been invited to testify. By the time this uh, this airs, my testimony may already have happened. But I've been invited to testify next week before the Senate Budget Committee, which is chaired by Senator Bernie Sanders, oh, the well, main author go. of Medicare for All. And the hearing is about uh, achieving, examining pathways to universal coverage and examining Medicare for All. Uh, because of the balance in power in the Senate, the Democrats will get five or six witnesses, and the Republicans often get just one. And so I'm it. So I write long testimonies <laughs> to try to explain why this is such a bad idea to have the federal government controlling all of the decisions, all of the resources in our health sector, and having government, not doctors and patients, making these decisions. And there have been numerous, numerous studies that have shown what this will mean, because they keep saying, well, we're just spending too much on health care. Absolutely true. Is government, our government price control is going to fix that? Or could competition and choice fix that? That's really the dividing line. And so I, I talk about studies, I talk about the, the, what we know about government-controlled healthcare systems. And frankly, Bernie Sanders state, Vermont, tried harder than any other state to try to implement a single-payer system for the state of Vermont. It has half a million people, maybe a few more than that now, and, and this tiny state completely controlled by Democrats, Bernie Sanders, you know, leading the leading the brigade, could not figure out how to do it. They realized they were going to tank their economy if they tried to do this because it was going to be so expensive for this little state. And Colorado had a ballot initiative. It collapsed. California has been trying to do this. Several, several ballot of initiatives collapsed. The voters get it that if you want something to be less expensive, that government's probably not the right agent to hire for this. Yeah, yeah. In terms of that, I was wondering, because uh, the Congressional Budget Office has put out some figures about single-payer. Um, do, you, do you have any figures from them or, or what they've, they've said? Actually, I'm, uh, in my testimony, I talked about what they, what they um, anticipate would happen with the, um, the funding because they anticipate that in order to get to the the numbers that they would project, that you would have about a 40% cut in payments to physicians, hospitals, et cetera. 40% cut? 40%. And it would grow over time. And they say, and they have said this will mean that many of them will simply not be able to continue to up to to um, to keep their doors open. And we've seen it just up the street from Congress is Providence Hospital run by the, I think the Sisters of Mercy for 150 years. It became so overly reliant on Medicaid, inner city hospital, very little private health insurance that really supplements the underpayments by government. And Providence Hospital has closed. And in Philadelphia, many other inner city, the more reliant they become solely on government money, 
the less they're able to keep their doors open and provide the services that they were created to provide. That right. it is absolutely tragedy. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, more and more physicians are uh, either limiting or just not taking Medicare patients, not because they don't want to, but because they're losing so much money on it. They, If they take those patients, they can't keep their doors open. Well, Medicare actually, in most cases, physicians do, some physicians have to, lo- to limit their Medicare patients for senior citizens, uh, those over 65, but Medicaid. I think I meant to say Medicaid. I think I you think, meant Medicaid. Yeah, I meant Medicaid, my bad. And, and let me tell you a story about a physician friend of mine who practices in Florida, and he wants to take Medicaid patients. He wants to provide charity care, but they won't let him because, it, you know, conflicts of interest, et cetera. So he takes Medicaid patients. He had a patient that had serious lung problems. And he said, if I were, if I were being paid by, a, by your employer insurance, they would have paid me $750 for the for course of care for this patient. He said, when I got the check from Medicaid, the check was for six cents. I'm sorry for laughing. And he says, there is no way I can keep my doors open and take Medicaid patients. And of course, to get that six cents, his staff would have fill, had to fill out reams of paperwork for the state, right? And so more bureaucracy, less payment, more rules, more mandates. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, wow. So, so you mentioned, so I'd like to come back to it because you, you, you mentioned it. Um, I'd like to get more of your take on it. Is the Affordable Care Act a precursor to the single payer system? Is that the end game? Do you think? Well, they they thought they would get to universal coverage with the Affordable they, Care they, Act. They meaning who? They, they meaning Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats who were leading this, President Obama at the time in 2010, and virtually all, every Democrat who spoke in favor of voting yes for this bill on the floor of the House and the Senate in 2009-2010, finally we're going to get to universal coverage. This will fill the gaps. Well, it didn't do it. And so they now real, that's, I think that's why you're seeing this new conversation about Medicare for all and all the hearings. This will be the sixth hearing that I have testified on uh, before against Medicare for all. So they are really trying to build a record of why this is needed, why the private sector is failing, why the Affordable Care Act isn't enough anymore. And part of it is that private insurers still participate in the Affordable Care Act. They don't like that. They want the government to control it all. And they say, frankly, if the government just controlled it all, then we'd have enough money and then we could get it right. Truly. That's, they, they say it's because we don't control at all that, that we haven't been able to do it yet. Yeah, my, my listeners can't see this, but I'm shaking my head here. Um, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Grace Marie, how would, going back to the question of conscience and religious liberty, how would a single payer system affect conscience and religious liberty, both for clinicians? And for patients. And for patients. Well, if you have a government program, they are going to decide what is medically necessary treatment. And they are also going to decide how much physicians will be paid, hopefully more than six cents. They're also <laughs> going to decide 
who's what uh, what procedures you must perform. So they are they are going to control the whole health sector and what is considered to be medically necessary treatment, how much will be paid for each one of those treatments, who's going to be allowed to provide it, who may be excluded from the system. Even in a even in a system that is really a government run system like the United the National Health Service in the UK, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. There are still options for people to have some supplementary private coverage and for physicians to actually see private pay patients. That's not as um, available in Canada, but what people in Canada do is come across the border and get care at the Mayo Clinic. And so people still try to escape. Many people escaped in the United States. So if we do a Medicare for all system in which the government is making decisions, one of the things that would really break my heart is that innovation would cease because you now are trying to figure out how do we follow government's rules rather than figure out how do we do a better job of taking care of our patients. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So last question in this part of the interview, and this is maybe a little bit of a bridge into part two. So during the Trump administration, um, congressional Republicans, if I, again, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but they essentially fell one vote shy and it was the um, John McCain's vote, I believe. They fell one vote shy of implementing their own version of healthcare reform. Can you tell us, Grace Marie, what did they propose here? And if the legislation had been enacted, would it have been beneficial for the American people? Absolutely, it would have been beneficial. And we worked very hard and continue to actually work very hard on on the replace provisions. We don't believe that anyone Democrats, Republicans should be engineering our entire healthcare system. So our ideas really move power and control away from Washington, in this case, through the states, so that they can make decisions about how can they re-energize their health insurance markets? How can they give people more choices? What can we do to make health insurance and health care more affordable? This is not something that's going to happen from on, on high. So our, our whole philosophy is based upon subsidiarity. But John McCain's thumbs down vote in the U.S. Senate in 2017, it was Uh, really just terribly unfortunate because it stopped the process. It stopped the process from really refining a proposal that, that, that had a lot of support to be able to come up with a plan that would move us more toward subsidiarity and away from top-down government control, and that was stopped in its tracks. And then when Republicans lost control of Congress the next year, We've really been uh, had had few options legislatively for change. A lot of things have happened administratively, but we can talk about that separately. This concludes part one of my interview with Grace Marie Turner. In part two, Grace Marie addresses issues of cost, waste, and accessibility within the U.S. healthcare sector. She also explains free market proposals for reform offered by the Health Policy Consensus Group in its publication, Healthcare Choices 2020, A Vision for the Future. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website 
ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.